You just can't stop people from improving themselves, yeah. even if you can meddle in their health care. Welcome back to Speaking Queerly. I'm Mallory Golsky and I use she, her pronouns. And this is a podcast hosted by Kaleidoscope Youth Center, Ohio's largest and longest standing organization serving and supporting LGBTQIA plus youth and young adults. And relevantly, there's never been a more important time to support queer and trans youth, especially trans young folks. Um, but before we get into all of that and the legislation that has been transpiring and all the updates since the last time we recorded, which has been a while, um, I want to introduce this week's guests, Cam Ogden of Equality Ohio and Trans Allies of Ohio, and Sean McCann of the ACLU of Ohio. Welcome, you two. It's nice to have you on. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Excited to be here. Well, tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves. Um, we could start with you, Cam. I have had the pleasure of getting to know you through this legislative um, work. I, something I always say is like the work we do sucks. You know, every time we go into the state house, it's like, okay, here we go. It's like fun, but at the risk of taking away people's rights, you know, but the people we've gotten to meet make it all worth it. And Cam is absolutely one of those individuals that I'm like, oh, great, I have to go to the state house, but at least I'm going to get to see Cam. So why don't you go ahead and start us off? And, and Sean. Well, right? yes, yes. I'll, I'll we want to see Sean my, too. <laughs> uh, uh, applause for Sean as well. Um, so hi, my name is Cam Ogden. Um, I am a transgender woman and a trans rights advocate at the state house. Um, I'm a policy fellow for Equality Ohio and I uh, helped start Trans Allies of Ohio alongside a bunch of parents of transgender kids. Um, I like to play guitar, and I live with my beautiful girlfriend who I've been dating since I was in high school. Oh, so sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Um, and Sean is somebody who I've actually gotten to meet a little bit further back during our time at the state house we both worked there um, before moving on to the other side of things at the state house so now we get to be the ones testifying not the ones like you know writing the testimony or whatever as we were doing as legislative fellows and aides and all that um, but sean why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah so hey everyone uh, my name is sean mccann he him pronouns i like mallory said work at the aclu of ohio i'm on the policy team my title is policy strategist but really i'm you know an advocate lobbyist just like kim was saying you know queer rights advocate and uh, i also work on other issues in our kind of uh, that the ACLU of Ohio cares about, including our death penalty abolition campaign, um, mm -hmm. classroom censorship, and you know, preventing um, entities like the legislature from telling teachers what they can teach, telling students what they can and can't read, telling libraries what they can and can't have in their in their inventory. So, I like you said, Valerie. Before that, I worked at the state house for three uh, long, but good, but long years. <laughs> um, like you said, it's like you know, working at the state house, working in this advocacy, you get to meet so many great people in addition to the, you know, the, the really hard days that you have where certainly as a legislative aide, I was trying to help my boss prevent some of the worst things mm -hmm. that were that were being debated. You know, certainly the bills we're going to talk about today have been have been around for uh, several years now, including other attacks on reproductive rights and in the, you know, the, the classroom censorship type issues and, and all these different things that, um, we just want to make Ohio a better place for, for trans young people and for, for everyone, you know. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. And, yeah, I think uh, talking about, like, something that you're doing at the legislature, 
you might only be there for three years, but it feels like an eternity. Like one year in the legislature has to be at least three. You it's know? like dog years. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> one general assembly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings up um, something we were talking about before we started recording is just like, what would we have been doing if not spending all of this time at the state house? Three years, six years, whatever it is, in legislative years or otherwise. Um, and one of you brought up a really good question, which is if you weren't doing queer trans rights advocacy, what would be the thing you'd be doing to? spend your time like whether in your job or otherwise well for me i actually started out um before i started doing advocacy as sort of a career path before i started working at the state house as a career path i was actually an engineering student oh so no way i was um, a mechanical engineering student mm. at uh, osu and um then i like to say that i started working um i started meeting with republicans to oppose anti-trans bills and i lost a couple of iq points right exactly <laughs> exactly but aside from the jokes i realized that a lot of the things i enjoyed about engineering you know the challenging aspects of problem solving learning new things um the the communication aspects a lot of those things also existed in advocacy work and I was relatively good at it. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing, um, thinking about going to work in politics as a career path because I realized that there's a large need for it right now considering the way that Ohio is moving. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were studying mechanical engineering, like where did you see your career path going? What did you want to be when you grew up? I, I wanted to work on, um, I wanted to work on systems of sustainability. Oh, like I could cool. totally yeah, have yeah, seen yeah. myself working in some sort of um, environmental work to try and develop technologies that to help with you know making more sustainable technologies. Um, of course, oftentimes when people do engineering, they start out wanting to do something really positive, and then they end up working at Raytheon, sure. which is just how it goes out for some people. Um, but my goal was to hopefully work in like sustainability or something like that. That's amazing. That's one of those career paths that I wish that I could take, but my brain does not work in the engineering capacity that is necessary for that. So that's really cool. Well, evidently mine didn't either. So. No, but we're glad to have that. I would venture to say you do actually still have those IQ points. So I'm <laughs> glad to have your intelligence here doing this work too. Yeah. How about you, Sean? So for me, I actually started out, I definitely, like you said, reading, writing brain, um, you know, whatever like the left brain, right brain breakdown is, I have like the more kind of, yeah, that, that type of brain. Um, I started as a journalism major, like we, we, were, we were just talking about um, at Ohio State and then switched to political science. And, you know, of course that led me to the state house. So I think I, I still would probably be in the public policy world and just kind of, you know, like cheering on, um, the queer advocacy world from the from the sidelines, but just still working on a different um, different area of public policy advocacy because I feel like it's just kind of where I've gravitated towards. Like as even like when I was a junior in high school and I took AP government, I was like, oh, like mm -hmm. yeah, like I can I can get down with you know what's what's going on here. And there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. Like you know, but this is really cool. And um, but I have always enjoyed writing, and I always kind of wanted to. You know, at first my thought was sports writer, and then, you know, I branched out from, though I love sports, there are many other <laughs> hobbies and many other things to, to be passionate about and to work on. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a hard question to answer because I feel like that's the, you know, the only thing I've done in my career is, is um, which is only several years old, is um, 
legislative work and then advocacy. So kind of like you said, going from the one side of the coin to the other mm -hmm. um, at the at the state house, and you know, keeping an eye on the federal government and local government sure. too. But yeah, it's definitely you know something that would allow me to use my my kind of passion for writing mm -hmm. um, in in public policy. Definitely. I think mine would fall very much along the lines of what you shared too, Sean, because I, I too was a journalism major in school and I do use, you know, I'm here hosting this podcast now, right? So there's still some ways that I use my degree, um, but I think in another life I would be a reporter. I could see myself being um, somebody like a, a broadcast reporter. That's definitely the track that I went down on um, when I first started college. And I still like videography. I still like telling visual stories like that, but um, I love to write. And I think that that's something I want to pursue more is opportunities to write. But I think I uh, saw that need for strong communication at the political level in advocacy work. And that's kind of where things have gone, but I'm totally open to other opportunities, even that if that's just, uh, you know, making coffees and being a swim coach or whatever, <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll see where, where this takes me, but um but yeah cool we definitely have spent a lot of time at the state house and i guess that segues into um what we're actually here to talk about which is house bill 68 and i guess we can raise our hands listeners you can raise your hands too if you're sick of talking about house bill 68 yes indeed that so that is a unanimous consensus here um I, where, where should we begin? Where are things right now? Where, where have things stood with House Bill 68? What has happened? What's the latest? Who wants to go first? So as of right now, House Bill 68 is not in effect. However, the Senate and the House have both voted to override the governor's veto of House Bill 68, and therefore it will become law as of April 23rd. Mm -hmm. That's correct. That's the date. Yeah. Yeah. So, so House, House Bill 68, I guess we should have started with this. If you have been like living under a rock in Ohio for the last like however many months, House Bill 68 is a bill that effectively bans uh, gender affirming care for transgender youth, anyone under the age of 18. Um, and it also was amended to ban trans women and girls from competing in school sports at the K-12 and college levels. Um, so a real doozy here. Um, luckily, fortunately, Governor DeWine vetoed that, but that was a very short-lived reprieve, if you will, because as Cam just said, we got back into things and the leg legislature did override that veto. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, it's a lot of people have made this point more eloquently, more articulately than me, but than I than I am about to. But I think it's important to you know hit on the point that, like you said, it was it was such a short lived reprieve when Governor Dewine vetoed House Bill sixty eight. You know he laid out all of these thoughtful reasons for why he was vetoing it, and then of course he went sure. proposed administrative rules that were you know less than less than helpful, and we're going to get to those later. Um, but the legislature just showed so much, as they have so often in the last several years, like so much haste in rushing back right fresh, fresh off of New Year's Day and getting back to work solely to override the governor's veto. And of course, they've done a couple other things, you know, they overrode a, se a separate veto that we, we don't need to get into, but you know. Um, certainly a trend of the legislature kind of choosing to assert itself. But 
it just they passed what 15 or 20 bills That's in the past year say. yeah I, mm -hmm. i'm not sure if you've seen the articles but um there is you know a historical lack of action mm -hmm. that the legislature has taken in the this general assembly so far so mm. last year i think you're right it was like was it 15 or 12 bills they, that they passed the legislature yeah. passed 15 bills uh -huh. they held 25 separate hearings on anti-transgender legislation though. Mm -hmm. right that's mm -hmm. just the anti-trans legislation mm -hmm. right yeah and mm -hmm. um i guess hb 68 makes it sweet 16. right so right yeah, yeah. and the um uh the hearings that have happened like or i mean the bills that have passed they're not significant, right? Like they're not bills that are affecting hunger and uh, the need for housing. They're not bills that are uh, improving schools, right? These are bills to like name highways and road, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. They're very trivial bills, but the really hard hitting, you know, important legislation that we're passing to impact the lives of Ohioans, right, is this anti-trans legislation. Um, right. And I think this is the fewest number of bills that the legislature has passed since 1955 in, a, in one year of a General Assembly. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's really horrendous when you think about it in those statistics. Mm -hmm. And extremely uncharacteristic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to understand what crisis has shut down our legislature. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that trans youth are that much of a crisis. No. But, um, they certainly have constituted a pretty large focus for the legislature's time. Um, and it's anyone's guess as to when they're going to eventually lose interest. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it really, I mean, you can definitely tell that the ballot measures that either haven't passed or have passed mm -hmm. in the last year um, have really stirred up a firestorm for them to double down and say, hey, no, we can assert control where we're able. And so they're trying to push through this horrific anti-trans legislation because obviously there's not an appetite for, well, there is still an appetite among some for anti-abortion legislation, but clearly with the passage of issue one in November, the legislature is realizing like, okay, we got to find another way to to assert control over people's bodies and mm -hmm. House Bill 68 is the move. I was mm -hmm. literally on a call with Sean when they announced the hearings for HB 68, celebrating our win on the abortion rights initiative. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you remember this, Sean? Mm -hmm. We were literally on a call together discussing future plans for, you know, fighting anti-trans laws mm -hmm. and also celebrating winning the abortion initiative and suddenly Sean goes, oh no, they're holding hearings on HB 68. Right. Mm -hmm. They waited less than a week after losing on abortion to start going after trans rights. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I kind of like what we were talking about with Governor DeWine's veto. I, again, I'm not that old, I'm not that far into my career, but I've seen enough with the legislature to know that I can't be hopeful for too long or I can't get my hopes up too long. And I don't want to deter people from having hope and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but it was when I saw the veto override, I had, or sorry, when I saw the veto initially, so many people were texting me being like, congratulations, this is huge. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, give it a week. <laughs> They'll be back. They're always going to be back to override. And, and we could get into gerrymandering and all that too, which is allowing this override to happen, but we'll, we'll kind of rein it back here. We could definitely talk about gerrymandering <laughs> another time and talk about why there is a veto-proof supermajority. Um, You've got three massive politics nerds sitting at this table. We, <laughs> right. could go on, like, we could go on about gerrymandering for a long time. Let's let's vow to have a separate episode to talk <laughs> about that, because we gotta. there's another ballot initiative that we have to start pushing and plugging. Mm -hmm. right. so, Stay tuned, friends. Right. Tuned. So on top of 
House Bill 68, which again is impacting trans youth. Um, when Governor DeWine, and you alluded to this, Sean, when Governor DeWine had his first press conference to um, announce that he was vetoing House Bill 68, this was back uh, December 29th, um, so just over a month ago. He also in this press conference kind of mentioned, well, you know, we have to take additional steps. And, you know, he was mentioning that he might want to assemble a task force to study, which is, you know, what everything in Ohio has right now is, oh, we got a problem. Let's have a task force. And then what does the task force do? I don't know. We'll hear about it in years, maybe if that. Um, but he, he announced these things. And then a week later on January 5th, he comes back with another press conference. Now, this is after receiving feedback and criticism from people who are like appalled that he vetoed this. So he comes back, presumably on the, under the guise of like trying to avoid a veto override. And he announces a couple more things. Do either of you want to share what those things were? Yeah, so, you know, of course he announced emergency rules. Uh, that went into effect immediately that would ban uh, surgeries for minors that we, we already know, you know, that the Ohio Children's Hospital Association testified multiple times that they do not perform surgeries on minors. And, and yet the governor kind of, you know, like you said, in an effort to, you know, ostensibly stay, but yeah, thwart the veto, went ahead and said, you know what, let's just make sure by administrative rule that this does not happen. And, you know, he chose to make it an emergency administrative rules so that could it, so that it could take effect immediately, and then you know a process plays out where um, the agency filing the rule can put in place a permanent rule later. Um, and then, of course, he he also issued an emergency order, kind of impacting which facilities could could. So, um, so these ones ahead. are yeah. So the first one that you just described that's one of the emergency that is the emergency executive order. Mm -hmm. And before we get into the other things, I think we just have to talk a little bit like procedurally. Mm -hmm what are these things, right? So the things that he announced are, um, they're not laws, right. but they sort of function as such. So the emergency executive order, um, I think a lot of people will recognize that language from the pandemic um, mm. because we had emergency health orders that were put in place to, you know, impose mask mandates, things like that. That might be a recent example that people would be familiar with, mm -hmm. um, but there's like an expiration for these. And so my understanding is that March, or sorry, May 5th is the day when that um, emergency executive order expires, mm -hmm. unless, like you said, the agencies take action to kind of put that in place for, for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but that emergency executive order is in place effectively mm -hmm. until then. And then what you were starting to go into next are these administrative rule changes. Mm -hmm. um, and the administrative rule changes are essentially like um, binding policies for different agencies. So state agencies would include the Department of Education, the Department of Natural Resources, the Department of Health, things like that, the list goes on. And these are policies that those agencies have to follow when carrying out their responsibilities, right? Yep. So. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and, and so Cam, feel free, obviously, to jump into. Um, so, you know, these administrative rules that are, that are currently receiving public, in, in one case, um, have received public comment is that the deadline for the Department of Health's proposed rules was January 19th, or in the case of the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, the deadline is coming up on February 5th. Uh, these are rules that are receiving public comment that 
you know, certainly the governor has expressed that he's pleased to see how much public comment he's received from organizations like ours who are very interested in telling him how his, he and his agency directors of, of the Department of Health and Mental Health and Addiction Services can improve or even rescind entirely these rules because, you know, like we were talking about, we, 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 we think that these were intended to thwart the veto override, but then the legislature went ahead and said, we don't care, Governor, we're going to go ahead and do this veto override. So, of course, his rules, and we, we can get into it more and, you know, talk more in practice about what the rules would do, also impact care for adults, mm -hmm. not just care for minors. And like you were saying, the governor kind of talked in his initial press conference about making sure there are controls in place and that... You know, he focused a lot on making sure that there was enough mental health counseling done. So, you know, the the mental, the mental health and addiction services role is very kind of onerous about ensuring that, you know, certain providers are contracted with with um, w wherever a person is the, the the entity where a person's receiving care, whether it's a hospital system or a smaller provider. Um, and, you know. <laughs> We kind of like like I alluded to earlier. We had to come back and say, you know, Governor, this is this is not what people were asking for when they asked you to veto the bill. This is this is unhelpful, and this could in fact impact care for everyone, and in, in, in even force some providers to have to close or to have to stop taking new patients. So, to, to, to can't feel yeah, free to absolutely. Go I'm gonna on. do what we call in the politics world a compliment sandwich, which is where you give someone a compliment and then you criticize them, and then you round it off with another compliment, so that the core criticism. Um, doesn't hit as hard, but you still get to say what you want. So that. I'm going to say that when the governor decided to veto HB 68, he did so out of his sincere belief that gender-affirming care is life-saving care and that the passage of HB 68 would result in children and families suffering, mm -hmm. right? He did that because he believed the doctors and the uh, pediatricians and the hospital associations that told him, you know, all of these things that the legislature ignored, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that came from a sincere belief of his. Governor DeWine also holds a sincere belief that people's bodies aren't under their own control, right? He passed right. the heartbeat bill. Mm -hmm. He passed severe restrictions on abortion providers. Mm -hmm. And he has consistently put him in a position where the state government and himself make decisions about women's bodies and about, you know, other people that you know, I don't necessarily think fall under their purview. Mm -hmm. And so this is another great example of that belief where Governor DeWine simultaneously seems to understand that gender-affirming care is really important, mm -hmm. but he also doesn't necessarily respect that transgender adults and transgender people as a whole deserve the autonomy to make choices about their own medical care. Mm -hmm. And that's what this, um, not legislation, but what these administrative rules that he's trying to establish really serve to do is mm -hmm. it restricts transgender people's ability to make decisions about their own body and it instead puts decisions about their body in the hands of a multidisciplinary quote unquote team, mm -hmm. which is very helpful if you have the resources to mm -hmm. acquire such a team and the money and the um, time to acquire such a team, but should not be required, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't have to get the the, um, I should not be required to get the permission of an endocrinologist and a psychiatrist and a medical ethicist and my treating physician just to receive gender affirming care. Mm -hmm. I should be able to receive that just like a person with diabetes receives care from my primary care provider, mm -hmm. you know, at, at their counsel and at their medical discretion. So, you know, um, I just wanted to start off by saying that this comes from a sincere belief that gender affirming care is important, but 
when it mixes with that belief that people shouldn't be able to make decisions about their own bodies, you get really weird things like this. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Sean, you mentioned as well that DeWine felt pressured to put some sort of rules forward because after um, DeWine vetoed the bill, he received an enormous amount of backlash from the national right-wing media circuit. Mm -hmm. Every Fox News host, every presidential candidate, all of whom have dropped out at this point, mm -hmm. um, every single talking head on the radio was criticizing him for vetoing HB 68 all in lockstep. And he felt like he had to do something. Mm -hmm. And so he chose to do this. And now we are dealing with the fallout. Mm -hmm. I think Cam, exactly what you just said is absolutely spot on. And I think a lot of the um, reason why there is so much just disorder is not the right word, but like there's discrepancies even between the administrative rules that have been proposed. And then there's also discrepancies between um, specifically around the, uh, the grandfather clause, which we can get to in a second, um, with what would the grandfather clause protect under House Bill 68 as a standalone law? What would that grandfather clause protect if the administrative rules are enacted as proposed and House Bill 68 is law? You know what I mean? So there's all these discrepancies. And I think a lot of that is because this was proposed a week after he vetoed the legislation. Like these things that take time and they need consideration and expert opinions and all that, like it was rushed through in a week, right? But that isn't to say that what was introduced is what in fact is gonna be put in place. So something important to note is the administrative rule process does include what we've referred to as these, this public comment period. And the agencies that the rules would impact um, set this public comment period time. So Sean said um, January 19th has passed, but that was a deadline for people to submit public comments on the Department of Health rules. Um, and upcoming here in just a few days on Monday is the February 5th deadline for people to submit public comments on the administrative rules that would impact the Department of Mental Health and Addiction services. Um, something that I think is really heartening to take note of is when you're going to testify at the State House, there's a lot of power in speaking out against this legislation. It feels reassuring in the moment because you're like, yeah, I told them how it is. And then 9.99 times out of 10, they're not really going to take your feedback into consideration. They're probably not going to create an amendment to the bill to change X, Y, and Z based on what you've said. Uh, that said, in the administrative rule public comment period process, they really do have a better chance of taking your feedback into consideration to improve these rules and policies before they take effect, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. You know, this is the final part of that compliment sandwich that I was talking about, right? So, yes, these rules were written from the stance of a governor and an administration that kind of feels like they have a place in the medical decisions of Ohioans. Mm -hmm. But largely speaking, the public comment process and the drafting process of these sorts of rules includes far more than just political appointees, mm -hmm. for example. You know, when I write testimony for the Ohio State Legislature against HB 68, I know I'm talking to someone who was elected by a gerrymandered district mm -hmm. whose only incentive is to play to a base that wants them to attract trans people. Mm -hmm. But when I write comments for the ODH, I'm writing them to be read by physicians, mm -hmm. experts in their field, mm -hmm. probably some political appointees, but largely speaking, people whose job day in and day out is just to make sure that, you know, 
health requirements are, you know, uh, up to code or right. drafted as they're supposed to be and to actually run a state, right. right? So there's a lot more to be said about how we could possibly be listened to. And I think that actually um, really has played out in the reaction from the administration, you know, DeWine's administration to, you know, mm -hmm. the absolute massive outpouring of opposition to these rules mm -hmm. that we saw on January 19th, right, Sean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I'm glad we're touching on this because I really do think that the, you know, the governor, like I alluded to earlier, he has even said so himself that like he does, you know, you can, you can take what he says at face value or, you know, you can say, oh, I don't know. I don't really trust what politicians say, but he did say that his administration is taking seriously the amount of public comments they've received and is, you know, imp imp I think he used the word impressed by mm -hmm. The amount of public comments that that the agencies have received and and you know like we're talking about there's still a few more days to weigh in on the mental health and addiction services rules and i i do tend to believe exactly what you were saying cam that you know these are these are in many cases like career professionals at at odh and and omas is kind of the acronym for mental health and addiction services um that we use <laughs> around capitol square mm -hmm. Um, these are people that are experts in their fields and that do want to get it right, that want to make sure that care is still accessible. And, you know, now that the kind of the political goal of saving off the veto override, like you said, that comes from that that place of believing that, you know, people have told me hospital, you know, doctors and people that work at the children's hospitals and these small these smaller providers across the state have told me that this is evidence-based life-saving care yeah I, I do i do really tend to agree with you that you know these agency professionals and and the directors of the department of health dr bruce vanderhoff and um mental health and addiction services leanne cornyn and governor dewine do believe that these rules can be you know rewritten in, in such a way as to not have these adverse adverse outcomes that organizations like ours have been talking about like you know being a de facto kind of not you know Certainly, I, I don't think anyone intended for these rules to be a de facto ban on on care. Right. Yeah. Uh, versus the legislature, where we knew that you know the goal the goal was ultimately to make sure that trans youth could not receive care anymore. Yep. The sponsor of the bill has said so many times, and you know here we're dealing with different people that we we do tend to believe have have good intentions, and we just need to educate them. Like, hey, you know this uh, here's here's a way to. Here's a way to avoid all of these consequences that your rules would unintendedly have caused. Right. And I think that's like, you know, we haven't really gone into, you've touched a little bit about the multidisciplinary team of care and how this could impact adults as well. But I think something that's important to note is that, you know, we don't need to drone on and on about what they were proposed to do. We mm -hmm. don't need to go into all those specifics because mm -hmm. A, they're confusing, right? And I Very. think, yeah, it's, I mean, as with many pieces of policy regardless of the topic like some of it is just designed to be confusing right i don't know if these were designed to be confusing so much as mm -hmm. as we've said they were done rushed Only and rushed. you know they knew that they were going to be changed before they were actually put into place mm -hmm. but like we don't know they for all we know they could read all of this public comment and be like you know what we don't have to do anything period and mm -hmm. they can scrap it entirely mm -hmm. or they can say you know what we're going to give this very bare bones, watered down version of what was introduced, right? So we can mm -hmm. hold off for another episode until we know more like what is the final thing that goes into place. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing to note is that there's still time to submit public comments mm -hmm. on 
the Department of, or, you know, OMAS rules, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. And don't fret just yet mm -hmm. about what this will entail because we don't know yet we what don't that will be, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we have, what, we have a, a set of language that is far from what the final language will be. Mm -hmm. And bottom line, the real transgression is that they're even making decisions about our bodies at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And exactly. that's the core of our opposition to it. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to be opposing that regardless. So exactly. So, yeah. So if somebody is interested in speaking out or submitting public comment, um, what are the ways that they can do that? So, yeah, like we talked about, the ODH deadline has already passed for submitting public comment on, on ODH's proposed rules. The OMAS deadline has passed. The ODH deadline mm -hmm. is on February 5th. Oh, I mixed them up. saying this in reverse this whole time? No, just the last couple just, times. Just okay, the last couple okay. times. Thank you, Cam, for, yes, thank thank you for catching that. Thank you so and, much. And yeah. that just yeah. used to show that like, you've got people confused. who have been immersed in this all this time and yeah. trying to rattle it off the top of our head, we're still going to get tongue-tied. So if you're somebody who's listening and is like taking vigorous notes, like, who do I submit? How, why can't I follow this? It is confusing. <laughs> Very so, conf yeah. Agencies yeah. are not meant to receive the amount of comments we've given them, and they're also mm -hmm. not meant to meddle in these sorts of things. Right. Um, certainly mm -hmm. not without legislative authority. So, you know, that being said, we have a lot of time February until February 5th mm -hmm. to submit comments to the Ohio Department of Health to oppose their proposed administrative rules mm -hmm. and to let them know how it would impact us, which is mm -hmm. to, you know, severely restrict our access to gender-affirming care. Mm -hmm. um, in that in that sense, um, we can send your comments directly to the ODH email, and we'll have a link, presumably, in the podcast description Absolutely. to their yep. uh, their submission portal. Absolutely, yep. yeah. yeah we'll suppose. just put everything in the in the um, episode notes. That way, you don't have to take vigorous notes if you're listening to this on your drive or on a run or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but your your public comments, it it, it sounds like as you're listening to this, like, oh my gosh, I have to write down every fact, every detail, every reason why these are bad. There's gonna be organizations like the hospitals, like the um, organizations like Equality Ohio, Trans Ohio, ACLU, KYC, there's gonna be organizations that are covering those minute details. They're not minute, right? But the every last detail, you can, as an individual, just submit a paragraph saying, mm -hmm. this is a bad idea and here's why. It doesn't have to be the most profoundly written thing you've ever come up with. Mm -hmm. It can just be enough to say, hey, take a moment, consider what the experts are saying. I, as a concerned Ohioan, would rather you heed to the advice of the experts rather than just making rash decisions for political gain. It could be as simple mm -hmm. as that, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, it can be intimidating for people who have not gotten involved. You know, even just testifying at the legislature, right? That's something that we've all sung the how a bill becomes a law song. We know that, right? We can all think of the legislative process. And even for something we're a little bit more familiar with, that's intimidating. There's no catchy jingle for how an administrative rule becomes a policy, right? Mm -hmm. And I wish there was, because I think we would have been able to articulate this a lot better over the last couple of weeks, but though we've we've learned a lot. Um, but I think if you're intimidated about getting involved, if you're intimidated about submitting public comment, you're just talking to people, right? You're not talking mm -hmm. to somebody who's big, scary, whatever. Like you're talking to somebody who works at these agencies and they want to hear from you. That's mm -hmm. the point of the public comment period. So mm -hmm. don't be deterred. And you kind of touched on it too. Like organizations like ours have, you know, like people that are, that are 
weighing in very like in the weeds on on here's how this line of you know the exactly. of the proposed rule is is out of step with with best medical practices but you know they might be experts in the sense of their degrees and their you know positions as you know legal director of the ACLU of Ohio or policy director or you know public policy director of Equality Ohio or, or wherever but you know is particularly like trans and uh, gender nonconforming youth are experts in their own right for and, and adults because we I, gosh we keep, have to keep hammering on that point that that this affects everybody you know they are experts in their own right for having lived it and having experienced it and having you know gone to all of these providers and and you know been through what these rules purport to impact so you know just just because you don't have that law degree or you don't have that you know background in public policy doesn't mean that you aren't an expert in in your own right and th that's exactly who they should be hearing from is is the the lived experience experts too no yeah i mean the legislature doesn't have any experts in gender affirming care but they seem comfortable shutting everything down for uh minors so. exactly mm -hmm. like if ever you have imposter syndrome about literally <laughs> anything like that you could have imposter syndrome about like what you do in your day-to-day -day job i know i do but just know that there are a gaggle of legislators who feel confident enough to strip people of their right to health care and rights to many other things, but staying on the topic of health care. Um, and they have absolutely no qualifications to do so. I don't even know what their qualifications are, like period, to do anything, right? Let alone meddle in people's private health care decisions. So get over that imposter syndrome because they certainly have. <laughs> the primary sponsor of HB 68 had never met a transgender person when he submitted the legislation. Right, mm -hmm. right. Not once, he hadn't met a single one. And uh, he went to an unaccredited colleges. So. Right. So if, if that can happen, you could submit a paragraph telling people why these are bad administrative rules to implement. So that's your advice. Take that one with you and run with it because that applies to like everything, not just, not just these administrative rules. Um, okay, so back to House Bill 68. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are worried right now. Like, I know we've been saying like, don't, don't fret yet, you know, but with House Bill 68, that is, that is real. In April of this year, that will become law, effectively banning gender affirming care for minors in our state. That will impact their ability to access things like puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, um, surgeries, of course, right? But that will impact you know, can they receive this care when, within Ohio? Can they go elsewhere, right? Because the bill does say that providers can't tell people to go out of state. They can't say, hey, you can't receive this care here in Ohio, but over in Illinois, you can. They're forbidden from doing that, right? Now, there are some individuals who are protected by a grandfather clause. These are folks who are under the age of 18, who are Ohio residents, and are currently receiving gender affirming care. They will be able to continue that treatment until they choose not to, right? Um, if that happens, right? But it would be the, on their own volition, not because of this law. Who this doesn't protect are individuals who maybe live in Kentucky or any other state where they are not able to access gender affirming care, or maybe they are able to access it, but because here in Ohio, we have such a robust network of hospitals and clinics that are able to provide gender affirming care that they come to here to Ohio to receive that expert care. Um, if they're not Ohio residents, they're not protected under this 
grandfather clause, right? So there are also a whole bunch of youth who maybe don't even realize they're trans yet, or maybe they do, but they haven't been able to start hormones. Unfortunately, those individuals won't even be able to receive hormones or begin that treatment under this law, or you know, once it, because, once it does become law. There are a lot of Ohioans, or there are a lot of people who are gonna start to consider to move elsewhere, right? understanding that that's a privilege not everyone's gonna be able to pack up and move to another state or to go live with relatives or whatever um but something i wanted to touch on and this could fall under the category of things that we can feel a little bit of hope about um there's a new partnership between kyc equality ohio trans ohio a couple other organizations but um namely the campaign for southern equality this partnership is forming as a result of the passage of House Bill 68. And um, there's a variety of things that we're gonna be able to do through this partnership. Um, but one of the big things is that there's gonna be these uh, grants that youth and their families especially are gonna be able to apply for to receive a little bit of funding to help with moving expenses or with travel expenses to receive care out of state. They're gonna be able to receive information about how to access care and where to access care in other states outside of Ohio. And this has started because in other states, this care has been banned. And we know that where there's a will, there's a way and people are gonna be able to find access to that care. And this organization reached out to us here in Ohio and said, hey, we wanna help you tap into this network that we've already started to build. Um, here's what we can do. So um, Cam, do you have other yeah, so the Southern Trans Youth Emergency Project is an incredible program and partnership between multiple statewide organizations in Ohio, tapping into a network of, you know, both national organizations and statewide organizations in states that have already banned care. Mm -hmm. I know um, people who, you know, traveled from Tennessee and Kentucky and other states to get care in Ohio, and they did it partially in because of the help of the Southern Trans Youth Emergency Project. So this is a project that both works and is currently building itself up to be even more capable to meet the you know demand that families will have who are impacted by HB 68. Um, right now, I believe the, um, the I, I guess we'll put the link in the uh, description, yep. but right now families can apply for $500 grants that will help them either with traveling to get care in other states or help them with moving. And then after a certain period of time has gone by, the uh, project or the partnership will reach back out and ask that family if they need more help. And at that point, they can be eligible for an additional $500 grant. So, um, you know, it's, it's every little bit counts. $500 doesn't seem like a lot until you're considering having to drive for eight hours to get care. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't seem like a lot until you're having to pay for movers or, you know, until you are having to find a new job, all that different stuff. Um, there's also resources from Trans Ohio. Trans Ohio has an emergency fund that is a little bit more agile, can give smaller amounts or larger amounts. It's more of a case by case basis. And we'll have a link to that as well. And anyone who's interested in helping out can either donate to the Southern Trans Youth Emergency Project or to uh, Trans Ohio's emergency fund. That's absolutely, and you segued perfectly because I'm sure there's a lot of people who maybe their lives aren't going to be impacted by this, but you're still absolutely disturbed by the fact that it's happening. Um, and you're wondering, what can I do next? I've called my legislators, I've testified, like I feel helpless right now. 
one of the best ways that you can support trans youth in this moment is by making those donations to help families receive that care. Yeah, so. Trans Ohio um, has already received many, many requests. Um, I've been in conversations with people internally in Trans Ohio about how many requests they've had for emergency funds. Um, but what I can say is that publicly, you know, in an interview with NBC, um, the board chair of, or not the board chair, the board secretary of Trans Ohio said they received and approved 68 families' requests. Oh my gosh. To wow. leave the state. Oh my And gosh. by approved just means approved for financial assistance. Sure. Um, so, you know, this is a very real thing. It is tragic mm -hmm. and we're doing everything we can to help in the small ways. Yeah. It's, it really is horrendous. I'm somebody who, and I know that this is a privilege, what I'm about to say, um, but I'm a lifelong Ohioan. I grew up in the Cleveland area, went to school in Ohio, still live here in Columbus, and I don't have a desire to leave, even despite the crappy weather sometimes, even despite the horrors of the legislature, because I feel so strongly that if you know, if everyone's goal is to legislate people out of Ohio, like those who have the privilege to stay and the desire to help fix things, like you have an obligation to stay and help make things better, you know, because not everybody has the privilege to up and move and not everybody has the privilege to stay either. And I feel that, you know, you have to stay here and help to make things better if you have the ability and desire to do so. So mm -hmm. I think that hearing about all of these Ohioans who are bright, brilliant people, like people who I've met too through this work and I know you've gotten to know too, like it, it breaks my heart to think that they're not gonna be living here in Ohio. They're not gonna be living near their families. They're not gonna be able to stay here and to help our make us make our state a better place. And at the same time, I'm like, go, run, get out of here, like go be free elsewhere, you know? And it, it sucks that we have to say that, but I think it's great that there's organizations um, that are able to help support people making that move or making those um, travel days to receive that care. Yes, absolutely. Um, on the topic of staying hopeful and what comes next, Sean, I'm going to turn to you, our buddy over here at the ACLU of Ohio. Um, some folks may have seen on social media this week that the ACLU of Ohio has announced that they're filing a lawsuit or they're going to file a lawsuit soon. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, because I, I think a lot of times when we've had these conversations about HB 68 passing, everyone's like, oh, well, there's going to be a lawsuit and then it's going to get overturned and we can, you know, forget about this. But it doesn't happen quickly, if at all. Right. So can you talk to us a little bit about this lawsuit? Yeah. I actually also wanted to say, because Sean's super polite and he's not going to say this outright, but I will. Lawsuits are different from law passing, right? Mm -hmm. So the legislature, a lot of things happen out in the open. A lot of things happen where we're trying to leverage the community as much as possible to show up, to show the support for trans people. When we're talking about a lawsuit, especially a lawsuit with this high stakes, oftentimes there's gonna be a lot of things that Sean and the ACLU can't share mm -hmm. outright mm -hmm. because it would give our opposition or others, you know, other folks trying to attack transgender youth and transgender rights in the state information that they could use to hurt people. Right. So just to be clear, and Sean wouldn't say this, but there's a lot of stuff that has to remain internal. Yeah. Um, but Sean's here to tell us as much as he can. Yeah, he's here to reveal the deep, dark secrets. So this, you're hearing it here first on Speaking That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, just opening the, opening the can of worms that I was told specifically, don't open that can. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, thank you, Cam and, and, and Mallory for mentioning that because obviously, so it's first of all important to note, you know, people think of the ACLU and, and state affiliates like, like ours, the ACLU of Ohio. And, and a lot of people actually don't know that there's a national organization and, and state affiliates. And they think, oh, ACLU, attorney, can you like, help me with XYZ or like I need you to file a lawsuit about XYZ and I'm like 
Cool, cool, cool. I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I do not have I do not have the that magical JD Esquire after my name. We do, of course, have those folks that do both on our legal team and um, you know a cu couple of their folks that actually don't practice law but that do have a law degree and it helps them better understand the you know the impact and the uh, and, and better kind of like strategize about how we can be proactive in in advocating for legislation or you know advocate against legislation. So important to note, not an attorney. Right. Also not offering legal advice because, you know, that's that's just an important disclaimer, kind of like you were saying, like, you know, that there are a lot of things that have to remain internal. Uh, the, the vast, vast majority of which I don't even know because I'm not on the legal team. You know, I'm, I'm here on the policy team, hanging out at the state house with you guys and, and you know, elsewhere, uh, doing more like kind of, you know, outreach and education type work. So I really, uh, you know, these things I really don't even know because, like you said, I mean, you know, lawsuits and, and litigation in general, it's very complicated. Obviously, attorneys are bound by all sorts of rules, ethics rules and, and you know, attorney-client privilege and, and things like that. So uh, what I can tell you, though, is that, yes, we, we did, we announced yesterday morning that we intend to, we, the ACLU of Ohio, and we, uh, ACLU National, um, in, in, in support of our affiliate, are filing a lawsuit um, to, to stop the enforcement of House Bill 68. Um, that, that, or I should say the lawsuit hasn't been filed yet, but, but, but we're announcing our intention to do so. Because, you know, a lot of times people, like you said, people ask, oh, who's, who's going to file a lawsuit? Who's going to file a lawsuit? Rightfully so, because they want to know that, you know, they're, that, Laws like these that do strip people of their rights are going to be challenged in in court because you know we we have we have the state constitution and, and the federal constitution for a reason to to protect people's rights and you know certainly we wish the legislature would be protecting those and adding to them instead of detracting from them so yeah well what I can tell you is, is we made that announcement yesterday morning and the official lawsuit the lawsuit itself will not be filed for a little while here because obviously there's a lot of work that goes into you know frankly like just building the building the whole thing and um, you know, the plane doesn't just take off immediately when we say, boom, we're filing a lawsuit. There's not, you know, like a magical, you, you don't just snap your fingers and, and the whole complaint is written and, you know, you're, you're ready to go from day one. But Because to use a relevant plane example, if the plane just took off, right, you know, you might lose a door panel or whatever we lost on that <laughs> Boeing jet, right? So we want to make sure right. that the vessel going into the air is as secure as possible, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it makes sense that you would announce that this is going to happen to give people hope that things are moving, that somebody is taking action, right? But you don't mm -hmm. want it to happen immediately because then we end up with a situation like those the proposed administrative rules where it's rushed and incomplete and, you know, you wouldn't have thought given to it. Exactly, right. And, and again, like I said, because I'm not an attorney, I really don't know <laughs> all the ins and outs of, of kind of how, how these things take shape. But, but what I can also say is that we will be filing. So there's a difference between challenging a law based upon a claim in our state constitution or in the federal constitution and, and oftentimes you know lawsuits are filed in federal court I, that's most often what we see you know in, an organization or an individual claiming that you know someone's right under the federal constitution is in, in the bill of rights is being deprived but we are actually filing a lawsuit in state court and that's really all i can say at this point mm -hmm. but it is just kind of important to know the difference because you know that there's there's a different process when when a lawsuit is proceeding through state court versus federal court, you know, the like we, we think often about, you know, like our, our rights under the federal constitution, the Bill of Rights, but the Ohio Constitution 
does have, you know, each each state has its own kind of protections that it has passed into law, either under a constitutional amendment, like we saw with issue one. Issue one literally added to the Constitution the right to carry out reproductive decisions. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, certainly state legislatures can also add to the, the rights that folks enjoy under uh, the revised code of that mm -hmm. state. So um, it, that, that's, that's an important distinction to make about our lawsuits that will be filed in state court. Along with the administrative rule changes and, you know, the lawsuit that you've just described, um, there's reason to be hopeful. There's reason to stay tuned and wait. Um, but we don't necessarily have all the answers right now. Uh, I know that's not heartening for people to hear because these are life impacting decisions. This isn't just like, what is the street going to be named? Like the legislature seems to think is the most uh, <laughs> hard hitting issues on top of trans rights or, or lack thereof. But these are life-altering decisions. These are life-altering changes that are being made to Ohio law. Um, and and we, it's understandable that people want answers right now, and we do too, but we just have to wait and see. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, litigation is, it, it, it's a lengthy process, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, it, it, it can take not not just months, but but years. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there are different kind of there are different stages of of litigation that that each each stage takes time to play out. But but what I do want to underscore and and what are what are you know once our lawsuit is officially filed, um, which which as a reminder, it hasn't hasn't been filed yet. We've just uh, the, the the organization has announced our intention to file a lawsuit. Um, is that we fundamentally believe that transgender youth and certainly also adults um, who fortunately are not impacted by HB 68 have the right to access medically necessary life-saving care. The lawsuit will lay that out very plainly that, that you know, we believe this and, and we believe that HB 68 is, is an infringement on that right. So, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, it's going to take some time, but, but we do certainly, we want folks to know that this is, this is something that we believe is, is, that HB 68 does violate a, a trans young person's right to access this care in coordination with their provider, with their parents. You know, these these are things that are happening that are necessary for for trans youth to thrive. And you know, doctors know what they're doing. Wake a <laughs> surprise, surprise! Doctors know what they're doing. These young people and their parents know what they're doing. They are going through all of the appropriate channels and it is totally not only inappropriate but you know not only is this inappropriate the legislature is doing this but they are depriving trans youth of, of this right to access medically necessary life-saving care absolutely well thanks for for laying that out um one other thing i want to touch on again on the topic of staying hopeful cam during a town hall a couple weeks ago you did this really incredible job of answering somebody's question. Um, and for those who are not on this, basically what happened is somebody asked like, should we even be hopeful? Like I'm panicking right now. What do I, I'm so worried about if my healthcare is gonna be taken away, like what should I do? And Cam really was like, you know, there's a difference between panic and fear. 
and I'll let you describe all of this, but I was listening to it and it really made me reflect A, on just like the word choices that we use, panic, fear, anxiety, whatever, and why, where there's some similarities and where there's differences. And it kind of made me feel a little bit reassured too. Um, so Cam, I'd love for A, if you could just kind of outline that thought, maybe has that evolved over time, even in just the last couple of weeks? And then I guess my next question, which we'll get into is like, how are you as a trans woman who is a impacted or could be impacted by this depending on the outcome of the administrative rules but b um, somebody who's in this fight day in and day out how are you taking care of yourself and what advice would you have for others who are in a similar position for how they can take care of themselves and just you know it's it's a marathon not a sprint as sean just outlined how are you preparing for that marathon yeah, I mean, like you said, um, some of the hardest parts about this last couple of weeks has been um, continually doing the, the community care part of what I do with Trans Allies of Ohio and, um, you know, being a listening ear for people who are panicking, who are afraid. And um, like I've said, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. I'm really, really terrified about the administrative rules and how they could impact my care. And I'm terrified on behalf of, you know, all the trans youth, specifically some of those youth that I know mm -hmm. who travel from Tennessee, who traveled from uh, Kentucky in order to receive care in Ohio and are now looking to travel to Illinois, to Pennsylvania, to Michigan, um, continually just watching those drives get longer, watching it become more and more likely that they'll have to move. It's really, really scary. But the reason I'm not panicking is because of some of my personal experience and the confidence that I have in our community's ability to take care of each other, mm -hmm. right? So I am afraid for the youth that I know will be cut off from care in Ohio, right? And I'm afraid for the youth in other states who are gonna have to travel even further. But I am not panicking because I know those kids are gonna be taken care of and they're gonna be okay because they have parents and families that love them because they have people like you and the rest of Kaleidoscope Youth Center who are working to um, make sure that they have the resources to get the care that they need. And people like Sean and the rest of the ACLU of Ohio who are fighting in the courts mm -hmm. to try and stop this stuff. But, you know, this also comes back to some of my own personal experience. You know, I've talked to some people over the last couple of weeks who are like, well, you, do you really know what it's like to have to move, to have to leave your home behind because of the state legislature? And I do. I actually, um, after HB 454, mm -hmm. the original version of HB 68, last General Assembly, so late 2022, after that bill stalled in the legislature, um, and after it died in the legislature, someone actually stalked me, followed me home, and threatened me. And mm -hmm. I had to move. Mm -hmm. I had to move because I actually wasn't safe where I had been living. Mm -hmm. um, someone had literally followed me home and showed up like physically. And... I, I definitely panicked at that point. Right. It was it was it was horrifying. But so many people showed up to help me and so many people took care of me during a time when I was at a really mentally vulnerable state when I was really like trying to figure out what I was going to do mm -hmm. and helped me and my girlfriend move and now we are in a better place than we have ever been before. Mm -hmm. We live in a really lovely place, you know, we are safe. We have a lot of friends, mm -hmm. just as many, if not more, as before when I had to move. And, um, and all I can think when I look back at this really difficult time is that 
I feel really lucky. Yeah. So I just want everyone to know that I've literally been exactly where a lot of trans youth are. Mm -hmm. um, where you have to leave because of, you know, the threats that the legislature is obviously fomenting against you. Um, and yeah, like during that time after I had to move, I was going through a lot mentally. I was really struggling. I was feeling unsafe. I was feeling like, like I didn't have control over my own life, which is something that I can imagine a lot of trans youth are feeling. And what I did during that time is I looked inwards mm. and I started learning how to play guitar. Nice, <laughs> that's cool. Um, I make TikToks and sometimes people uh, recognize me from my TikTok videos. It's not really like a big thing that I do for work. It's just something I do for fun. But um, at one point, you know, a group of younger people saw me at a coffee shop and they said, what are you doing right now to like deal with the stress? And this was around the time that I'd started learning guitar. And I said, I started learning to play guitar. Mm -hmm. And they thought I was going to say, I go on the news and talk about trans rights. I right, go to the state right. house and I find, <laughs> no, literally learning to play guitar has been a small way that I'm improving myself that no one can stop me from doing. Right. Mm. Right. I love that. No one can stop me from making myself into a better person. And even if you feel like what the legislature is doing has put the brakes or has disrupted a core part of your life, you should know that growing up and doing stuff has a lot of different paths and you can still improve yourself and work harder to become the person you want to be. And they can't stop you from doing that fundamentally. That's mm -hmm. like a fundamental human thing. Right. So that's, that's, that's my outlook so far. I love that so much. And like remind, reminding yourself that like you are you, you are a whole person regardless. You are, you are trans, whether or not you can receive care. Like they can't take away your transness from you. They can't strip that part of your identity and yeah. they can't stop you from improving your life in other ways too. And yeah. I, I, that's a really cool perspective. And gosh, I should have had you bring your guitar and show us a little something here. Uh, but no, that's amazing. Um... I, it's, it's hard. Cause like when you're learning guitar as a kid, I never did, but like, I imagine as with anything, learning a new language, whatever, as a kid, it just is, it clicks so much better. Right. But learning something as an adult, or, I mean, you're not like an adult, like a grown up, grown up, right. You know, we're about the same age, which is why I'm saying this, but I tried learning guitar a couple of years ago and I was like, Psh, I'm going to pick this up. No, I did not pick it up. <laughs> it was not very good. <laughs> so kudos to you for taking that on. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it's, it's very empowering, yeah. right? Right down mm. to the fact that when you start learning to play guitar, you get calluses on the end of your fingers. Yeah. And it, it really drove home to me that like the decisions that I was making were impacting the way that I felt the world, right? Mm. God, and you just you just can't stop people from improving themselves. Yeah, even if mm. you can meddle in their healthcare, even if you can force them to leave the state, even if you can make them afraid, you know, just mm -hmm. like happened to me. Um, you can't stop people from improving themselves. So that yeah. is extraordinary. Wow. I love that so much. Um, just like talking to a couple trans friends recently and hearing from them about how, you know, they, they have had some really supportive allies, but they wish that more cis allies were at the very least just reaching out to see how they were doing, reaching out to see like, can I like bring you some food? Can I bring you like a nice little treat or something? Mm -hmm. Or like, do you want to go? do something, you know, do you want to go see a movie or like whatever to sort of, you know, certainly nothing is going to take that burden off, alleviate that fear. 
But like you were saying, you know, the, 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 the legislators that have been pushing these bands for, for years now, they can't stop you from learning to play guitar. They can't stop you from learning to like, I have learned to cook better over the last couple of years and like talking to a couple, a couple of my, like I, I ironically, like in the same conversation with a couple of trans friends, like they had so many great like tips, like so much great advice about here's like where you can get better, like ingredients like like here's where you can get like spices from like a local you know like a local market that's gonna have better stuff than just like buying the discounted one at kroger that's yeah. you know like you like yeah, but, but at the same time like money is tight and you know none of us you know we all chose the nonprofit world right <laughs> um but just thinking about how i can you know like you like you were saying earlier about using privilege and staying here to try to make things better for for our trans and gender nonconforming siblings and in the hopes that we can, you know, help help them stay rooted in, in Ohio. Like I think about like, what can I do just on a Friday night or Saturday? Like, can I drop off like a nice little, you know, nice little something for one of my friends that is going through like, you, that, that, that is like panicking, that, that is like trying to, you know, trying to find like that, you know, trying not to panic but like certainly can't help but but think like what does my what does my future hold and like can i can i stay here you know Mm -hmm. can i afford to move etc just something small that i can do to you know to alleviate a little bit of that burden i think like i would encourage everyone to like even if it's just sharing the trans ohio emergency fund or the or the scyep link you know on your social media like posting something on your instagram story and telling people that you like your cis friends that might not know this is happening like hey if you've got a little extra coin if you're you know like a couple of my friends that like work in tech or whatever like that those of us who don't work in nonprofit, (laughs) who have the dispensable income like that's something you can do and if you can't support financially like those you know those like non-monetary ways of of supporting your trans friends, your, you know, your like family, your, your, your friends who have family members who, who are trans or gender nonconforming, just like finding a way to, to let them know, Hey, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And even if I can't, you know, help you like pay for, pay for care from a different provider or to move or whatever, I'm, I'm going to do something to, to make your, you know, to make your load a little lighter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so cis folks listening, this is your call. Like, I, it's you might feel like, oh, it's too late. I didn't testify for House Bill 68, or maybe I did testify, and you know, okay, throw my hands up. Like, it's out of my control because the ACLU, it's on them now, or whatever. You know, um, no pressure, but we're all waiting for it. Um, But yeah, exactly as you said, like the the fight is not over. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I think that is the most cliched uh, analogy there, but it's true. We're in this for the long game and cis allies, it's not too late for you to step up and um, join this fight too, because it can't, the trans folks cannot carry this burden alone. Yeah, you know, I wanna take a second and spotlight some incredible cis allyship that I saw and um, just to be clear, I'm saying cis allyship here. I, it's just this incredible moment where um, Senator Teresa Gabarone, mm. one of the Republican senators who, by the way, has a transgender child, mm-hmm. but voted for a Republican senator who voted for the override and of the veto. spoke out in support mm. of it. And spoke <laughs> in support down, of it. Yeah. Did not just do so silently, did so with, you know, a lot of bragging and, you know, fist pumping and whatnot. Um, 
she went to a Bowling Green, that's her district is the Bowling Green area. She went to a Bowling Green Republicans Club meeting recently after she had passed HB 68 and she was expecting to be able to brag about it. Mm -hmm. But instead, the Republicans, a lot of the individuals, the cisgender people who showed up to that Republicans Club asked her why she did it and they berated her for it. Extraordinary. <laughs> and I don't necessarily, I mean, obviously I don't necessarily, um, know whether or not those people are full LGBT allies. Sure. But I think just understanding that it's really easy to check out at this mm -hmm. point, mm. but that's actually what the Republicans are hoping will do. Right. They literally at certain points, I don't want to speak too, um, I, wanna, I don't want to speak too much about, you know, private conversations, but at certain points, you know, Republicans have talked to me or others and said, Republican legislators and said, okay, we're done with this now, right? We can just wash our hands of it. Right. We can just be done with it, right? The answer is no, because trans youth are now having to deal with the consequences. Maybe right. they shouldn't get to forget about it either. Exactly. And they certainly shouldn't be allowed to brag about it. So, you know, it's really um, tempting for cisgender people to check out mm -hmm. and to sort of just go along with what the legislature's done. But I don't know. Sometimes it, it can really affect them when they think that they can brag about something and then they actually get shamed for it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the message don't have imposter syndrome. That's our earlier takeaway. And now public shaming, the way to go. <laughs> Those are our takeaways for this episode. Uh, well, no, I, I just want to thank you both so much for being here. Um, I know it's early in the morning and we've been talking about some hard hitting stuff, but I really appreciate both of you for your expertise and your um, obvious devotion to this fight and just, you know, for being here and for staying here. And uh, it's been a pleasure to get to know you both just through this fight. So hopefully this last uh, hour and a half or however long we've been on is is allowing others to to get to know you a little bit too yeah. uh, so to our listeners thank you so much for tuning into this episode of speaking clearly if you know of somebody else who has had questions about house bill 68 and the administrative rule changes maybe somebody who's looking for hope or for advice or answers not legal advice we know that sean um, <laughs> share this episode with a friend because you know knowledge is power knowledge can be reassuring um and we just want to make sure that everyone is you know on the same page and part of this fight for for the long term Absolutely. so thanks for listening to this episode of speaking queerly and as always we'll include all of the information you need to know in the show notes so you can stay involved bye y'all